Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa, 95.7. In Toronto at 106.5. And if you have downloaded the Radio Player Canada app, or if you haven't, you can. And then you can type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM and you can listen on the device of choice right across the country from every province and territory. Today on the show we have a couple of guests and our first guest is a call-in guest. We are just waiting for her to get on the line. Beverly Jacobs, she's uh, from uh, the Six Nations. She's uh, Mohawk. And she's part of the uh, Haudenosaunee Confederacy Bear Clan. And uh, she lives and practices in um, on her home on Six Nations. But to tell you a little bit more, she's also a recipient of the uh, um, uh, of a few things. She is an alumni of Windsor of Law, and I believe she's on the line now. Is that correct? I am. I just got on the line. <laughs> Good morning, Bev. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so where are you today? I mean, I, I've got you down as Calgary, University of Calgary, University of Windsor, Six Nations. <laughs> You're all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm actually in Washington, D.C. at the moment. Oh, well then, I didn't place you there. Uh, can I ask what you're doing down there? Um, I'm presenting. There's uh, uh, four colleagues that are presenting at... Uh, Law and Society Association conference that's being held here in um, in Washington on uh, the doctrine of discovery. Mm. And and so, what are you guys discussing with that, or looking at with that? So we're we're presenting it uh, and the impacts that it has on on each of our nations mm. and how we've. Uh, um, how it's an underlying factor in uh, in Canadian and American law, mm. um, and and with respect to property and Indigenous peoples' um, lands and territories. Right. Um, well, congratulations on on being there. Now, this is, uh, I guess, one of the many things that you have been involved with over the years. Obviously, your your history. Uh, and your your uh, CV speaks for itself, but um, just to, to share a little bit, you've you received an Order of Canada, I guess, within the last year and a half or so. That's part of mm-hmm. uh, the things. Now, I know that you also spoke to, to that in receiving that, that you said you accepted as being, uh, you wanted to bring more attention to Indigenous laws, responsibilities, and Indigenous peoples to protect lands, waters, and resources. Yes? Right. That's exactly why. And and that is a, a great thing that you you uh, are are doing and speaking and coming forward with that. And I'm not surprised, as a Mohawk woman of Six Nations, Haudenosaunee, <laughs> that uh, you are uh, uh, come forward and say those things. As I know, uh, many uh, many Mohawk women are very uh, strong in their opinion and want to uh, want to get that out there. Um, uh, and I, I know that we've probably seen each other around, Bev. I don't remember if you you know have seen me around from the community or not at different events and things. But in any case, it's, uh, it's nice to have you on the phone. Now, the other thing that you are associated with is the Stolen Sisters Report with Amnesty International, which examined uh, factors contributing to the risk of violence against Indigenous women in Canada. Right. What can you share with yep. us about that? 
So that was also another reason why I accepted the Order of Canada was uh, was also to bring attention to um, to the issue. And um, so going way back to 2002 and three uh, is when I began doing the uh, the research into the uh, the critical uh, numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. And um, and so was uh, hired by Amnesty International to uh, to work on meeting with families across the country and interviewing them and asking them if they wanted to be a part of this uh, international uh, research document on violence um, against Indigenous women and human rights violations and. Uh, so that was the beginning of my relationship with a, with a lot of families who became involved at that time mm. and uh, became an international report. And um, so also, uh, you know, bringing attention to it on that scale. So it was, I think that was the catalyst to, I think, the uh, the awareness of the issue and also, at the same time, I became president of the Native Women's Association of Canada, and we, we started a whole campaign uh, of awareness and bringing attention to the issue, um, you know, locally, nationally, and internationally. So it was it was uh, a lot of work and a lot of um, uh, emotional work, spiritual work really hard, really uh, difficult, emotional work. I can very much relate to that. In fact, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it was something that was on my mind in terms of looking at the report and looking at this. The, you know, Of course, uh, the missing and, and murdered Indigenous women is a very troubling issue in the country. We know the numbers keep going up and we know that the issue keeps is persistent. And uh, it is very troubling. Uh, you know, when I look at the first page of this, uh, the summary, and the, the first thing that comes up is a Helen, Helen Betty Osborne, and, um, and then her, 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 uh, her, um, her cousin, um, who also goes missing. And, and to read about the, you know, how these things were dealt with, uh, y- you know, even from the, the perspective of, of the police services in the communities where they took place, and just um, to find out, you know, it even took 15 years, of course, for Helen Betty Osborne to have one of the people brought forward. Uh, and, and of course, that was made into a film, I believe, Conspiracy of Silence, I believe that, that her story right. was, was part of that. Yeah. yeah, and that was actually one of my recommendations to Amnesty, that they ha- have to at least start with her, with, with the loss of her. Mm. Um, because it, high, I mean, her her death, her murder, um, highlights the the racism um, and also the systemic racism that exists within the within the criminal legal system that starts with policing. Mm-hmm. What what did Amnesty International uh, say to you when you started to bring these this information forward? I mean, they were they were maybe aware of it, but I'm wondering did they did they have any idea of the scope? I I don't think they knew the scope. I don't. I I didn't know the scope mm. until delving into it and realizing um, 
realizing the uh, not only the numbers but also the just the lack of um, um, or the disregard of the losses um, and just noticing how um, you know that that racism that exists you know even in in the media and how it it's it portrayed Indigenous women and, you know, and did, and, and, um, victim blaming, Mm. you know, it's like, Mm. like, how can that be? Um, women are being murdered and disappearing and it's their fault. Yeah. Um, you know, that was, that just disgusted me. It angered me. Um, I could have been one of those women. Uh, any Indigenous woman is, you know, a target, and um, and I just that was it for me. It's like as as soon as I got into meeting with with the family members, especially, and hearing their stories, and and at that time, it was the first time that they ever shared their story mm. and shared their their grief and their loss and their trauma, and because there was so much layers of trauma that. You know, it wasn't just the loss of their loved one. It was also losses of other loved ones and impacts from residential school and impacts from the child welfare system and impacts of the jail system. You know, it just become more and more and more layers and more layers. And and it just, it just fueled my fire even more to... Uh, to bring attention to the issue and wondering why it wasn't on the, you know, on the radar for all of the public to to be outraged about. So that's when my when my um, I decided that that was when I was going to continue to do the work for them. So Bev, in in terms of what you just said, that outrage and fueling that fire and and wanting to get the message out there, uh, what was there one particular thing that you have found in terms of the research and in terms of your your involvement with this that that stands out in terms of of that understanding or or helping you to understand why there is this lack of of uh, of desire to to get to the bottom of this to find the people responsible because let's face it these women are not are not I would assume mostly not disappearing on their own there are people out there that are responsible for these there's people out there walking around that are responsible and they're not exactly. being brought to justice and that's not yeah. that's not really being talked about here that's exactly the issue and so that so what I'm what I'm finding and what I've found over the years is that it's a systemic Canadian problem, um, and not in doing the, the investigations. The whole criminal legal system, and I've been on a rant about this for a while. That um, starting with Helen Betty Osborne and J.J. Harper, there was the Manitoba Justice Inquiry back in 1991 that said, and many others, there were actually five, I actually just found the research on this just the other day. In 1993, there were already five reports that said the criminal legal system has miserably, miserably failed Aboriginal people. And since that time, 
since 1993. There was a Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. There's been all kinds of uh, provincial inquiries and task forces on the criminal legal system, and they all say the same thing. There's all kinds of recommendations and all of those reports about systemic change and how things need to be changed within that system, and nothing has changed, and in fact, it's gotten worse. And so um, that's where the problem comes from. The problem comes from colonization. The The problem comes from genocidal policies from Canada, um, including the residential school system, including the Indian Act. Um, all of all of the um, the processes, the institutions, the laws that have enforced Indigenous people into and um, through law. So it's it's frustrating to have to go through and see all of the um, the realities of that system and the impacts on Indigenous people and specifically on Indigenous women. And, um, you know, people think that colonization is over and it's not. We're still, we're still being targeted as a people. Mm. And we, we see those things uh, in terms of, I guess you could say, a lack of political will in terms of just dealing with some of the issues that are facing us uh, in, in, in some of the communities. It, just recently with the one community Absolutely. in the north where they are still waiting after 10 years to be moved to higher ground uh, with, the, with the flooding situation. And it makes exactly. you wonder why. Um, now... Uh, uh, Bev, as you as you move forward through this, and you are dealing more with this and bringing these things forward, what is there? Is there a gleam of light you're seeing? Is there anything positive that you have seen come out of all this? Um, well, I haven't seen anything from the Canadian government or any government um, movement. But I, what I have seen, which is really good, is movement in community and movement with the grassroots and people standing up and saying that uh, that they deserve to have a have a better life and and that they shouldn't be controlled anymore because that is what the Canadian government has done for too many years now is control our people through mm. the Indian Act through um, the Indian Act government so it's time and I've seen and I think that our young people are also um, becoming more aware and standing up and you know, returning back to our traditional values and our principles and our ceremonies because that's where our, our um, you know, where our power comes from is our own laws. Mm. Um, and yes. when we're following our own laws, then, you know, and, and actually this is just, I just finished my PhD dissertation and, um, and that was one of the findings from my report is that, for my dissertation and the research in the community of Akwazesne mm. was that when we follow our own laws, when we are practicing our own laws, that's when we're, we are fully, holistically healthy. And when we are doing that, we're also being uh, self-determined people. And so I see that, uh, I see that and feel that in coming from, from my own community and knowing that the changes that we need to do to empower ourselves through our own laws. Bev, how, how close are you to, uh, to speaking with uh, the powers um, in, in your community of Six Nations 
Um, are you are you speaking with with elected council or the Confederacy in terms of some of these things that you're referring to? Yeah, I've always worked with our our traditional government with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, mm-hmm. um, and I'm working on a project right now with uh, uh, Dr. Don Martin Hill. Oh yeah, and we're we're working on uh, uh, water um, water governance, water laws. Mm. So. And working with a, a grandmother's council from home, and um, so now we're working on. So, what it, what are our laws that um, govern water and our relationships to the water, and how do we ensure uh, water and environmental security, and um, and the development of um, a process to um, to educate. You know, a whole public education campaign about our own laws and our own principles. Because when we're following our own laws, we're being—we have to be responsible, not only for ourselves but also for all of creation, right? That's what our—that's what the Thanksgiving address tells us mm-hmm. in our relationship to the natural world. So, that's our laws. Those are our laws. So mm-hmm. we need to um, to make those connections. And I think a lot of a lot of us forget about our connections that way. Right, and uh, and it's just about empowering those and empowering, empowering up, um, you know, our laws. I mean, I can't say that more and more loudly about what what uh, what we need to do to reconnect to that and our, about our responsibilities to the natural world. Mm. Uh, Bev, one of the things that that you kind of alluded to as we were talking about not only the report, uh, the Amnesty International report, but also in terms of moving these things forward. And, and congratulations, by the way, on your on completing your dissertation. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm going to ask you about that. So, um, it, it, and that is that you mentioned trauma and um, the continuation of intergenerational trauma that plays, you know, we hear about the Indian Act, we hear about all these things, but I, I'm wondering how how much do you think that that intergenerational trauma still plays a role in holding uh, and you mentioned the youth, which I believe are coming forward. A lot of them are speaking out. I think that 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 the health is coming back to many Indigenous people in that regard. But there is still intergenerational trauma that has impacted our people in so many ways, and it's holding people from becoming the full holistic people. I think, if it's yeah. fair to say, and moving forward. What do you see yeah. in that regard? How? What do you think needs to be done? So what I see is that. You know, we're all we are all individuals from our from our own nations, um, but we are also responsible to ourselves, as well as to our nations and you know our clans and our families and you know the whole nationhood. So one of the things that I found is that our people have been in a violent relationship with Canada and the United States for too long. And so one of the ways that that uh, that I've understood, and this is because of my own experience in being a victim of violence, is that you have to get out of that victim mode. And getting out of that victim mode is really hard to do, to mm-hmm. say, you know, I have a voice. Uh, I don't deserve to be violated. I don't deserve to be controlled. Um, and that's one of the, you know, one of the key things is once you do see that, your voice 
become stronger and louder. And that's what I see is happening now is that people are starting to get out of that victim mode and starting to realize the bigger picture. And so, and a big part of that is healing. Mm. Um, and healing is, is a big part of um, ending that victim mode. So when you heal from the violence, when you hear, heal from abuse, like I would say not one of us has not been impacted in some way. So it's like really taking a look at yourself first and realizing that intergenerational trauma and where it comes from and realizing that it's not our fault mm. because as part of being a victim, sometimes you take the blame for it all and it's not our fault. Canada has put us in this situation and once we understand that whole bigger picture about, you know, why things are the way they are, is uh, is standing up and saying, I'm sorry, but um, you're not going to do that anymore. Mm. I'm not going to allow you to do that anymore. And I'm going to make sure that you're not going to do that anymore. Mm. And so, you know, it's also part of this um, um, fear, right? Because, because. Victim mode also keeps you living in fear. Yeah. Um, so it's coming out of that as well and saying, you know, I've been through all of this crap, and no matter how much crap <laughs> you still try to impose, I'm not going to be fearful anymore because there's nothing that can change my um, my vision for my people. You know, I love my people. I love my family. And I want us to move forward in a healthy way and be healthy people. Um, and so let's move forward and look at the past, look at what they've done and say, um, that's over. <laughs> You're not going to do that anymore. Um, let's try to figure out how we need to go through our own ceremonies of healing because we have those and, um, and move forward so that we can be healthy for the next seven generations. Mm. Bev, uh, we have to take a short pause, so please stay on the line, and we'll come back and speak to you uh, to uh, finish up the bottom of the hour, and it's a pleasure speaking with you. Just stay on the line. We'll be right back speaking with Beverly Jacobs right after these messages on Element FM. We're back on the air at Element FM and a great message that we just heard there. We're speaking with Bev Jacobs. She's on the line from south of the border. I believe you said Washington, Bev? Yeah, I'm in Washington, D.C. And how long are you going to be there for? I'll be here till tomorrow. Presentation is tomorrow. Mm. So well, coming back, I'm heading to Calgary after that. My graduation, my oh. Ph.D. graduation is on Monday. Oh, well, that's great. That's great. Congratulations once again. And um, you've received a, a couple of other things beside the Order of Canada. You've also uh, received a Franco-German Prize for Human Rights and the Rule of Law from the governments of France and Germany for your uh, fight against for rights uh, and issues relating to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Yes, I did. That was pretty amazing. Yeah, how did that feel to receive that? And what did it mean when... when when you receive those in recognition of, of the work that you're doing, what, what does that say to you? Um, well, I'm, I'm a pretty humble person. Mm. So it was, um, it was pretty, 
I would say, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's, uh, I know that I did a, a lot of work and it wasn't just my work. I mean, I worked with other, many other Indigenous women and organizations to bring attention to the issue. So, so when I accept those, it's on behalf of, you know, on behalf of the spirits of, of those women, um, who, who are, who are past and acknowledge, you know, their, um, their sacrifice is what I call it now for, mm. uh, you know, that they, they did ha- sacrifice their lives and, and bringing attention to the issues and hoping that, um, that will come to terms with, with it, that it's going to stop. Um, and, uh, you know, so, um, I was, I was surprised actually about the Franco German and the order of Canada because, you know, I, I, I do lots of, um, uh, advocating, mm. and, um, critical, like very critical mm. of Canadian government, um, and what, you know, their responsibilities are in, in, uh, amending all of the harms that they've done to our people. Mm. And, uh, and hoping someday they'll, they'll figure it out that they'll, that they need to change and that they need to, um, systemically change. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing, um, ongoing process and always hopeful that that change will come so uh beverly you you just say you've completed your uh, dissertation now your phd congratulations going to be graduating uh, on on monday there in calgary but you're also associated with the university of windsor ontario is that correct yeah that's where i graduated from law school and now teaching uh teaching at the school Uh, teaching law yes okay so I'm I'm now an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law. So I'm um, returned back. So I've been there for two years now. Oh, congratulations on that as well. So it, it, I see that you're you're a consultant, you're a researcher, writer, and and also a public speaker. What kind of uh, public speaking is it again on uh, related to the the, uh, the women issues? Yeah, it's been on that. It's been on. Um, well, this here is on the Doctrine of Discovery. Mm. I've presented a few times now. Uh, I just came back from the UN uh, Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, and um, it was on working with uh, my, my Māori friend from um, mm. New Zealand. He's also working on her dissertation on the Doctrine of Discovery. So we had a side event at the UN Um so my focus now is on on climate change. It's on the environment. It's on our own laws to protect uh, the environment, and uh, continue my advocacy for the families of missing and murdered Indigenous women. The um, the uh, National Inquiry report is uh, being released on Monday. So. Mm-hmm. Um, our families from Six Nations are attending, and um, I really hope that uh, that something will come out of the report. I've been critical of, of the inquiry because they, they didn't um, provide the support to families that they should have. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I'm going to wait on the comments on that until I see the report 
Right. Uh, Bev, it's been a pleasure speaking with you this morning. I appreciate you calling us uh, from the south of the border in Washington and taking the time to do so and speak about yeah. these very, very important issues uh, concerning women. And as you mentioned, very hard, hard work. Uh, so I take my hat off to you uh, for that hard work that you are doing on behalf of, of women and missing and murdered Indigenous women. Uh, it's an issue that we need to continually bring forward and talk about and and get to the bottom of and make sure that the people that are responsible are brought forward and, and dealt with accordingly. So I thank okay. you very much for, for taking that time to do this today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Nyawa Goa. Yeah, Nyawa. And yeah. we have been speaking with uh, Professor Beverly Jacobs. Uh, she is Mohawk Nation and uh, from the Six Nations. She's calling us from Washington, D.C., where she is making a presentation tomorrow. And she just uh, completed her dissertation and uh, from the University of Calgary and will be graduating on Monday. We're going to take a short pause, uh, maybe go to a song, and bring our next guest in. Our next guest is Sheila Cole. And she is a Tim Hortons camp alumni. And uh, we're going to be talking about Tim Hortons camp day and how uh, the Tim Hortons camp uh, changed Sheila's life. So don't go away. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages and song. Welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to... As we said, Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And our guest in the studio at this time is Sheila Cole. Now, Sheila has an interesting story, and it's associated with one of our favorite pastimes in the country, I guess you might say to some degree. We all like coffee. And, of course, Tim Hortons is a staple of this country in terms of serving coffee and other fine things to us uh, as we run off to work and elsewhere. And how is Sheila's story tied into Tim's? Well, because Sheila is uh, is a graduate, I guess you might say, of Tim Hortons Camp. Now, Tim Hortons Camp is associated with Tim Hortons Camp Day, which is coming up on June 5th. And uh, everyone knows about uh, buying a coffee on Camp Day and that it goes to help those less fortunate. Now, Sheila has a story to tell about that. And we're going to actually let you hear the story that is on the Tim Hortons website right now. So if you go to Tim Hortons website, you'll see this video. You can't see it now, of course, but you can hear the story as we're going to run this just to give you a little bit of background in terms of of Sheila's story. And then we'll delve into it a little bit more with her. So check this out. I thought my story would never change. I don't recall feeling like I was able to dream. I was 16 when I was kicked out of my home. It was the loneliest time of my life. Because of all my years at Tim Hortons Foundation Camps, I knew that I could change my story. I was surrounded by people who are saying, you can do this. Let me show you what a positive and encouraging relationship looks like so you can go and find it. I was able to graduate with honors from nursing. And now I have a healthy, happy, supportive, positive family. And my daughters will always be able to dream. At camp, I was so lucky to be able to have that support and change my story. And you can change your story too.
you can change your story too. So it obviously helped Sheila change her story. And as you said in, in that little clip we heard, you were kicked out of your own home when you were 16 and, and were, were told to fend for yourself. Um, can you give us a little bit of background in terms of, of what happened and why? You know, how did all this come about? Sure. Um, there was a time that my, well, during this time, actually, my family faced a tremendous amount of loss. My dad passed away with cancer. Mm. Uh, my sister left home and and already coming from a low-income, single-parent household with lack of support and resources, the stress and the coping abilities just weren't there. And that, that left me out on my own, fending for myself. And during some of the most vulnerable years mm. of my life, but mm. thankfully I did have the camp during those years to help me. Now, you, you also got involved with the Big big Brothers, Big Sisters there. That's right. So coming from low-income mm-hmm. uh, family, I was, you know, the need for resources was recognized, and I was enrolled in Big Brothers, Big Sisters program, and that's just one of the many youth-serving agencies that work with the Tim Hortons Foundation camps to help identify youth that could really benefit mm. from the camp. So when I was 10, I was selected to go to camp. Mm. And I spent five more summers uh, during my youth attending the Tim Hortons Foundation camps. When you were uh, sent uh, or left out on your own like that, what were some of the things, do you remember, going through your mind at the time about you know, what was <laughs> where you were going to go, what you were going to do? There was a lot of, uh, well, I felt lonely, uh, inadequate, Mm. unworthy. I felt like every day more and more the the cards are being stacked against me. And Mm. was it even worth my time to Mm. think about my future? You know, uh, a lot of kids uh, with just what you said, and some some people in that position might think, you know, that's it, you know, uh, and, and go down another path. What was it? you think that that made you uh, be able to turn that around or get and go in the direction that you did go? Some of the skills that I learned at camp, although not knowing them at the time, have really transferred over into my everyday life. You go to camp and you face these challenges, but in Mm. a positive environment, portaging a canoe, um, reading a map, canoeing in the middle of the lake, setting up tents. These are strategic camp-based activities that Mm. we got to participate in they're encouraging adaptability, confidence, mm. responsibility, all these skills that although your circumstances are still going to be the same when you leave camp, you're a different person sure. and you take on these challenges in a positive way. It kind of sounds like what you're saying is that what they do is they open your mind to show you options. Just, you know, um, uh, saying, you know, the first thing comes to mind, I'm going, what do you think about kids, how, how a kid from the urban city would feel if they were dumped in the forest somewhere. <laughs> All they had was their cell phone. You know, right. that's what they've been focusing on and didn't have any of those skills. It broadens the mind in terms of, hey, I can get out of this because I have these other, I, I know how to do this. I know what that's to right. do. A- instead of trying to say, I have no service, now what? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It, it, would you say that has it, that is part of it? Absolutely. It's seeing the positive in hard situations and mm. understanding that you can persevere and and have that resiliency to get through whatever life throws at you inside or outside of camp. So is there one thing that you can you can um, sort of focus on or think of that or that comes to mind when you say it this is what really turned it around for me. 
you know, what, I mean, was there one thing or that, that you can think of at that time that, that helped? During the, the process of camp, they send you forms and they ask you, where do you see yourself in five years? Mm. And prior to all this, when you grow up in, in disadvantaged circumstances um, and fallen hardships, it's, it's a lot about short term. Yeah. What am I going to like? How am I going to get through tomorrow? How mm-hmm. is the family going to make it through to next week? And here I have papers asking me, what am I going to do in five years? And to sit down and, and think about that and think about my future and set those goals, it gave me something to work towards. You know, that's a really interesting comment because you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, and, and, and knowing the, a similar situation that I came out of as well, a uh, similar situation, one parent, single parent, very low income, uh, it is very short term. You don't think about the next, you don't think about the next five years. And, and if someone doesn't point that out to you, you stay stuck in that mental Absolutely. thinking of short term. Right. What's my next meal? What am I going to do tomorrow? Uh, you know, what's going on today? It's just, you, you don't think about that. So that is something that, that could really help. And if we don't get that guidance, which right. is what that is, it's guidance to mm-hmm. make us think in that term, then many people get stuck. And then it's harder as you get older, if you don't, start to help your your mind to think in elasticity in those areas of long term it just becomes short term and short term and short term well one in five youth in canada are are growing up in poverty and mm. those kids have an increased risk of repeating the cycle of poverty right. yeah. and their ability to develop skills to be successful as adults mm. decreases mm. so if you don't have the support and the resources to really break the cycle mm-hmm. it's very difficult like you said to to get into that mindset mm. of, of how you can change your story and right. your future. Right. Now, do you have friends that came out of the camp with you or that you've stayed in, in, in touch with that, that you know have, have also uh, managed to get things going forward? Oh, for absolutely. I have uh, friends like fellow campers, counselors that I've mm. been able to stay in contact with that continue to cheer me on. Mm. Um, but there's an abundance of, <clears throat> pardon me. An ab- <clears throat> no worries. Don't worry about it. <laughs> An abundance of us, a lot of nurses, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. We're all, you know, eager to, to help others. Um, engineers, lawyers, doctors, we're all chasing after our dreams. And, and it's pretty incredible to see each other and communicate with each other and see mm. where we are today. So I guess the other side of that is once you've gone through that process, you've gone through the camp, uh, you're older, you've got yourself established, your mom, you're, you're married, you have a home, you're, you know, your life is sort of settled to some degree yeah. and it's, it's worked out well. Um, and, and as you say, now you're, you're dealing with other people and other professions that are, that are starting to move, uh, get their lives together and get those things moving forward. What about, uh, do you now look in terms of the giving back side? Do you now look and say, hey, I want to be come or, or go to speak to these kids at camp, to go and try and encourage youth in the same situations, to show them that there is a better future for them? Oh, absolutely. Like this opportunity to share my story, which was very difficult and, and, and I feel very vulnerable doing it. Mm. But the hope is that hopefully there's youth out there listening and and something sparks hope in them. To, to change their story. And I have two daughters of my own and my whole world is ensuring all the skills that I've learned at camp get passed on to them because unfortunately they're mm. fortunate enough, enough to not have to not yeah. be able to go to camp. Okay, so let me ask you this. 
you just mentioned your daughters and, and you know, you, you want to make sure, I guess, that that doesn't happen to them. So what are the things that you are now thinking of or saying to your kids, you know, about themselves, for themselves, for their future? Um, we have a very positive and encouraging environment at home. My husband and I do a very good job at, at lifting up our girls, but asking questions like, what are you going to be when you grow up? Mm. Or similar to camp where we'd have family meals all get together mm. and reflect on the day. We do that every single day as a family so mm. they can see positive interactions. They can have goals and dreams and and have a support team behind them encouraging them. Mm. Um, as, you, as you look forward uh, to, to going forward and where you want to see this go for yourself. It's wonderful that you have this opportunity to share these things. Now, you mentioned vulnerability. That was the word I was I was trying to get to there. Vulnerability, in terms of sharing the story, you said it's hard because you feel vulnerable. But I would say that that translates over to kids in situations from broken homes that, like you said, a single parent, or someone that is in a very low income and feels insecure, it, it translates into vulnerability as well. Mm-hmm. And the kids that are vulnerable need to need to understand that it's okay to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Right? They have to but to not not give up or not take action because of that vulnerability. Right. Yes, would you agree with that? I one hundred percent agree with that. Yeah. Would you be able to add anything to Sure. <laughs> it, and like I said, it's not easy to share mm. your story. You especially when you come from some situation, you just, there's this in, ingrained worry that you have and you're scared of screwing up and you're scared of rubbing people the wrong way or not being good enough. And uh, being able to share your story is so therapeutic and liberating and to know that one day you can change it and get past it and get mm. through it and be comfortable enough talking about it and encouraging other peoples to get through those times too. Yeah, I guess the other thing is that it's admitting, admitting that this is your situation. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that when you think everybody else has it together. I, I and, hid from my my circumstances my mm. entire life. I went mm. to school and acted the way I, want, I, mm. I wanted to act. I, mm. I didn't dwell on my situation because I felt like it put me at even more of a disadvantage, right. even in... In my later years, going to school and, and getting a job, I just never mentioned it because I didn't want people to look at me like I was broken. Mm. Mm. That's right. And we don't want people to see us that way. No. Um, that's, that's a very interesting thing to say, of course. And there was something else that came to mind as you were, th- you were saying that that may come back to me in a moment. But um, what would you say then to, uh, to parents... Uh, uh, or other youth that are out there that are thinking, I don't know if I want to get involved with Tim Hortons camp. It sounds kind of goofy or it sounds kind of, you know, blah, blah, blah. What would you say? If you have the opportunity to go to the Tim Hortons camps, they are phenomenal. You're going to have a t- the time of your life, but you're going you're gonna to go there, and the moment you get there, everyone is going to believe in you. But by the time you leave camp year after year, you will believe so much more in yourself, mm. and that confidence is going to be transpire through all aspects of your life. And I can't wait to see where all the youth going to the camp end up. How many kids were you in camp with? Do you know how many kids were there at the time? Usually uh, groups of 10, but there's been 275,000 kids that have attended the Tim Hortons camp mm. in the last 45 years yeah. since it's been open. And and like you said, you do a lot of outdoor activity stuff, yes. but uh, yes. a lot of camp 
camping, uh, campfire stuff. You do a lot of those kind of things. Yeah. I, I, I think they do uh, like rope climbing yep. and, and all of that kind of activity, yep. which is very good for kids to do as well. It, it challenges them so yeah. that they can believe in themselves and they can push themselves in a positive environment mm. so that they can face other challenges. And is it usually like a week at a time or how long is it? Nine days. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you go to some camp off somewhere. Uh, yep. Where did you go? Uh, my initial camp, I was in Quillon, Quebec, and then for the remainder of my camp years, I was in Perry Sound, mm. Ontario, and mm. um, St. George, Ontario. How's the food? Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> it is home-cooked meals. Oh, it's it's. Incredible. I mean, it's not all Tim Hortons donuts? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. That's yeah. great. When you say home-cooked meals, like... Regular home cooking. Right, you know, potatoes and yeah, meat yeah. And, and and actually they have a variety. Even, mm. you know, we'll have tacos one night mm. or even like a Chinese. Yeah, and they have, oh, every dietary restriction. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. it's amazing. Mm. Um, what do, is there is there one thing outside of the things that you learned? What what was the one big takeaway from just being there? I mean, I, I kind of kind of know this, but I'm just wondering, what is the biggest takeaway you took away from just being at the camp and being involved with those those camps one big takeaway is just believing in myself and and the goal setting absolutely like just knowing that I had the support system but they weren't going to be there every day of my life they Mm. were just there for the for the summer but I have their voices and and that environment to really find and create of my own so having the confidence and believe in myself has been incredible in my career in my um, schooling career, and it's really made me a better mom, a better spouse, and you know, more active in my community. It's also now you mentioned yourself and these things that you learned, but it's also team building, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, what are the one of the kind of things they have you do as a team member? Can you remember? Well, one of my favorite activities is an overnight, and we did a canoe trip. So hmm. there's ten of us, and we're all in canoes. Mm. getting from point A to point B and, you know, someone's reading the map. You're really dependent on whether it's you or not, right. this person to guide you in the right direction. And you have to put that in their hands mm. and be comfortable with that. And when you're dealing with, you know, unfavorable weather conditions <laughs> or sure. rough waters or you have to depend on each other to yes. really help each other through those hard situations. Right. Okay. Well, Sheila, um, you know, I think your story is one that, can ring true with a lot of people, and and certainly, uh, you know, even myself, uh, uh, I I hear I hear what you're saying, and I can relate to a lot of what you're saying from my own background. So I appreciate you you coming forward and and taking uh, the time to share that with us and be vulnerable. You know, I, I think vulnerability. Um, you know, you say that, and and it's a very uncomfortable word because it makes us feel uncomfortable. But I also uh, realize from things I've done in, in in my own life, and and is that it's that un, it's the, it's taking the chance even while you're feeling feeling uncomfortable that that makes us grow stronger. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. So it's great that you're you're uh, going around and sharing your story and being able to do this. So um, I just want to share with everybody. We're getting close to the end of our show. I'll come back to uh, to Sheila in a moment. But uh, Camp Day is Wednesday, June fifth. It's the largest largest annual fundraiser for Tim Hortons Foundation Camps. It's the one day each year when Tim Hortons restaurants owners donate one hundred percent of the proceeds to from all coffee purchases to the Tim Hortons Foundation Camps, uh, who send local youth 
from disadvantaged circumstances to one of seven camps across North America. And for the fourth year, guests have the opportunity opportunity to denote uh, rather to donate two dollars and receive a camp cu- cup camp day bracelet. Pardon me, available for four vibrant colors: blue, red, green, and orange. Guests can round up their order with the balance of the dollar going towards the Tim Hortons Foundation Cups. So that's great that they're doing that and uh, they're continuing to do this. In 2018, Camp Day raised more than $13.1 million for Tim Hortons Foundation Cups uh, camps. That's that's wonderful. That's great. So, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, one in five uh, youth grow up in poverty, and when youth grow up in disadvantaged circumstances, the change changes increase chances rather increase that the cycle of poverty is repeated so there's just some of the details that uh, Tim Hortons Foundation is helping with and that's a wonderful thing so it is a nonprofit organization and a leader in youth development it supports kids from disadvantaged circumstances between the ages of 12 and 16 at the time of their lives when they are determining who they will become as adults and that's an absolute truth And uh, through a multi-year camp-based program, the kids learn skills like leadership, resilience, responsibility, empowerment, and to believe in their own potential and change their stories for the better. And I just want to add, and and this is from my own experience, and and Sheila, you kind of touched on this. It it helps. Um, It helps with your story. It helps to build those things, but it doesn't end there. It's only sort of an opening that helps you do this. There's still much work that people have to do individually. And uh, and get help from people around them. Absolutely. And surround themselves with people that can encourage them to do that and move forward, uh, not to fall back and, and be discouraged. You, you always want to get that that empowerment from the people around you. That's right. Having an, an amazing support system and resources can, can mean the difference of a youth uh, struggling in life or a youth thriving. And mm. we all want our youth to thrive. Uh, do you know how, how did you get in, like, what did you have to do physically? Because I'm wondering about people that are saying, okay, I would like to do this. What do I need to do? Where do I go to sign up? How do I do this? Well, I was um, part of the Big Brothers, yes. Big Sisters program. Yep. So through that is um, one of the youth serving agencies that works mm. with the the camps. And that's how I was involved. Mm-hmm. So they work with schools, um, Children's Aid Society, mm. and those sorts of resources mm-hmm to help identify kids that could really benefit right. from the camp. So if you have the opportunity to go, absolutely. I guess, um, I guess schools would, would know about this. If, uh, if, a st- yeah. if a child is, is inquiring, it could probably go to the office and say, do you guys have forms Ab- or do you know how absolutely. I can get a hold of, you know, be able to uh, sign up for camp day? And camp is, is year-round as well. And there, yeah. there are school opportunities um, for schools that are located in – in low-income yes. neighborhoods that actually get the opportunity to come to the camp and, and experience it as well. Uh, what was that you were saying about year-round? What was that? The camp is actually year-round. There's a summer program and then a school program as well. So it's, oh. it operates year-round. Nice. Yeah. So um, what, what are the kind of school things that are available? Do you know about the school opportunities in terms of what's available at school itself? So it's in these um, low-income areas that the schools will mm. come and it's, you know, through their teachers and the principals involved and they come and participate in camp activities very similar to, to what you'd have at the summer camp, which mm. I attended. And there's a, a community aspect to it as well. So they develop all these skills and then as 
uh, a class go back and and have a community initiative mm. to help uh, demonstrate those skills that they've learned at the camp. Mm. Okay, great. So, and as uh, Sheila mentioned, there are seven camps across North America. There's one in Perry Sound, as she mentioned. There's one in Nova Scotia. There's one in Alberta, as in Quebec, as pointed out, in Kentucky. I don't remember seeing that one somewhere. I remember seeing something about that one. And St. George, Ontario, and Seven Sisters Falls, Manitoba. So um, that is uh, where they are located. Um, now, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, because of the location. Um, I guess everything is covered, transportation to all these areas that kids get covered. Yep, 100%. So all that set is, is covered. So don't be worried about uh, the, the financial end of it, I guess. You can find out more about that if you apply. And you can also get involved with uh, the conversation by going to several areas like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube. You can get to see that video we were talking about earlier with uh, 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 Sheila's story. And uh, you can also uh, follow Tim Tim Hortons on Instagram at uh, Tim Hortons and on Twitter. So you can get involved with all of those areas with the conversation and post comments. And uh, if you have a story that you would like to share about uh, what happened, uh, your positive experience with Tim Hortons camp, uh, please please do so by, by doing that. We will have this conversation also posted up on our website after. So you can always uh, comment on one of our, our social media sites as well. I'm David Moses. I want to thank Sheila Cole for coming in and telling us her story and sharing us more about the Tim Hortons Camp Day coming up. And that is June 5th, so buy a coffee. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.